Hi, this is Pastor Jim. Thanks for joining us for this week's message from Riverside Church. I believe you will be inspired and blessed by the Word of God. We'd love to welcome you to one of our services next time you're in the Brisbane area. If you'd like to know more about us, go online at www.riversidecc.org.au or like us on Facebook to hear about up-and-coming events. I hope you enjoy the message. God bless you. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to church again. This morning, um, it's, a, it's a hard, it's a difficult message to speak because it's quite complex. And uh, if you don't get it, uh, it's my fault for not explaining it clear enough. So I'm hoping it's otherwise. We have, over the past few weeks, been talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus leading up to Easter, which is in about two weeks' time or thereabouts. We did the betrayal, the denial, and today I'm dealing with the pain that Jesus endured, the whipping and the crowning with the crown of thorns. And uh, so I've titled the message this morning, uh, it's I am in pain, but I've titled it, Jesus suffered for his glory, for his own glory. Now, um, when we go through pain, we immediately seek to be free from that pain. It, it's just natural. It's human nature. Um, we pray, God, take this away. We we want to be totally free of pain. I'm not wanting to minimize pain because I've been through my fair share over the years, and I know it's really real. However, you know, a lot of this pain, you know, the ill effects of pain will be gone if we become less me-centric and become more God-centric. Not minimizing pain at all. I know folks are undergoing a lot of pain, and all of us have, and some in a greater measure than others. But I believe if we become less me-centric and more God-centered, that pain becomes more manageable. And if we are in pain, seek whatever means and help that's available. Don't simply say, I'm not needing help, I just trust God, okay? Seek whatever that's needed to get you over that pain. But at the end of it all, ultimately, often, the answer to pain is less of me, more of God. I want to show us today that Jesus suffered. Now, we, we know this. You know, as soon as we, be, we become Christians, we're told, Jesus suffered for your sake. Well, I, I want to say this too. Yes, that's true without taking any of that away. Jesus did suffer for my sake, for your sake, but he also suffered for his sake. He suffered for his own sake. So there is this thing called the God-centeredness of Christ's sufferings. If we could put up the next slide, please. Thank you very much. The God-centeredness of Christ's sufferings. Now, the Bible gives 
numerous references to God saving us for His glory. But we tend to discard them because we want God to save us for my sake. So here are some. Well, the book of Ephesians chapter 1 itself speaks at least three times that, that term, for his sake, for his glory. Let's, let's look at Ephesians 1, 13. You heard the word of truth. You received the gospel. You believed. You were saved. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All to the praise of his glory. It's for him. It's for his sake. Now, in fact, it's even more telling that, that God does certain things, good things, for us, more so for his sake than for our sake. Look at Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Ezekiel 36, 22. Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. It's not for your sake that I'm doing these things to redeem you, to help you, to save you. Not for you. Wow. Fancy God saying that. It's not for your sake. It's for my sake. So I think we, we need to have some sort of a paradigm shift when we come through well, when we live life, look at another verse here. 1 John 2, verse 12. 1 John 2, verse 12. I am, this is the Apostle John writing, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. It's not so much for your sake. Of course it is. Yes, it is. But the Bible says your sins have been forgiven for his sake, it speaks a lot. Why is this so important? Why, why is this so critical? Well, the thing is this. There is a tendency in our current secular and, and materialistic world to look at things in such a me-centric fashion. We, we have exalted human value to such an extent that we have eroded God's preeminence and priority. That's what we've done. This is what we call the post-modern age. All of us were born during the modern age. In other words, we were born when the motor car, the, all of these machines were, were invented. So we were, no, one no one accepted. Every one of us have been born in the modern age. During the modern age, the key word is I can do it on my own because I, I need to travel fast, car. I need to fly in the air, aeroplane. So I can do it. The term is self-reliance. Postmodernism came about 30, 40 years ago, and it says, express yourself. Today, you want to be this? Fine. It's fine. If it works for you, fine. Tomorrow, if you want to be something else, that's fine. Go for it. It's you. Self-expressions. You become the arbiter of truth. You chuck God out. That's postmodernism. So this has sort of crept into the church. And so we say, 
I will go further with God. If he meets my needs, if my feelings are validated, if my self-interests are served, yeah, I'll, I'll give my life to God. It's for my sake, my comfort, my vision, my well-being, my prosperity, me, me, my sake. Whereas God is saying, hang on, for my sake, for his sake. I think that's the message for us. You might say, why is God so self-centric? Why is he so selfish? He wants his sake and his glory to be promoted. Well, you know, you remember just a week before Jesus was crucified, he entered Jerusalem and the people were waving palm branches and so on. And the Pharisees said to him, Jesus, you hear all these this rabble here making noises, stop them. And uh, Jesus said, if I were to stop them, I tell you, even the stones beneath me would cry out. What he's saying is, deity deserves praise. That's God's prerogative. If, in fact, if we do not praise, acknowledge, and, and, and worship him, it's an affront to Almighty God. That's what it is. So, the God-centeredness of Christ's suffering. So, that's the hard bit. It's a little bit hard to explain, okay? So, I want to come now to talk about four divine qualities that would reveal God's glory through the sufferings of Jesus. He suffered on the cross for his glory. Here are four. And I want to take us to the book of John. Why John? Because John was so up close and personal with Jesus. And not only that, on that evening when Jesus was, was seized in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane, John stayed the longest and the closest to Jesus. So his, his reporting is important for us. I like us to read John chapter 19, just five verses. And we will discover four divine qualities that exalt the, the, the name and the glory for his sake of Jesus. John 19 verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, whipped him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, said to the Jewish authorities, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I found no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. According to Roman practice, whipping or flogging came with a whip which ends, which end has several strands, and these loose strands at the end of that whip has broken bones, pieces of metal, sharp stones attached. And so the, 
the, the design of this whip is to, is to maximize damage to the human body. Uh, William Barclay, the Scottish commentator, says, a lot of folks who were whipped die, e even before being taken to the, to the crucifixion site, they either collapse and slide into a coma or they just die. That's how severe. Uh, it turns your back into raw red flesh, broken up flesh. That's what it does. John 19 verse 2, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. Now, it was this weekend called the Passover when Jesus was crucified. And, and Pilate had whipped him. And the soldiers thought, well, we heard so much about this Jewish festival. They are, they're celebrating the exodus from Egypt. And they're saying, a Messiah is coming. And this Messiah would do similar to what Moses did at the, pass, the first Passover. And, uh, and this lawbreaker, he is the supposed Messiah, Jesus, that, that captive that's been here before us. And so they said, huh, he is the Messiah. So they, some, someone collected some thorns and, and they, they just plonked it hard onto his head. And the spikes from the thorns punctured deep wounds into his head, causing blood to just ooze out. And they, they said, a king must have a scepter. So they, someone had a reed and they, they put it into his hands and they said, and in, in great pretense, they were paying homage to him. And so one by one, these soldiers would, would, would go before him, pretending like a sovereign, pretending to kiss him. And as they drew nearer, they would yank at his beard. That's what the Bible says. His beard was pulled out. They would yank at his beard and they would, pretending to worship, they would spit on him. That's what they did. Spit on him. And you could see the curl in their lip. Disgust and, and hatred. You going to free Israel from Roman rule? Hail, King of the Jews. They mocked him, and it was all a role play to humiliate, and they were brutal with him. Let us consider four qualities, divine qualities that, that could be displayed, and we, which we must acknowledge this morning to his glory. Because he suffered, not so much, yes, yes, for our sake, but more so for his sake. Quality number one, perfect justice. John chapter 19, verse 5. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold a man. John is the only gospel writer to record this. Behold a man. No other gospel writer does this. There's something about John. I think he's wanting to, to portray the humanness, the humanity of Jesus, because he said as well somewhere else, and we'll come to it later. We'll, we'll come to it now. First John chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit 
that confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is from God. Every spirit or every person that confesses the humanity of Jesus Christ is right. And he goes on to say, by contrast, anyone who does not confess that Jesus came in the flesh is not from God. So the humanity of Jesus is just as important as his deity. Why is this so? Well, Pilate was absolutely right, theologically speaking. He was right. Jesus was a man. Pilate said, behold a man. That's once. On three other occasions, he refers to Jesus as being the man or this man. Man. The wounds he suffered, the pain, the whipping, the crowning of the thorns, the blood, they were all on a human body was not some sort of a mirage or something. It's a true human being. Why is this important? Well, the first man sinned. He was a man, Adam. And because man sinned, payment for that sin has to be made by man. Has to be made by a man. But the payment was so high, only God could pay it. And that's why God needed to become a man. The God-man. There is only one God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary became pregnant and they questioned her. And Mary said, I do not know when this baby was conceived. I have no idea because no man was involved. But that baby was a man because that baby, Jesus, was carried in the womb of a human mother. So he was truly man. But no man was involved in that pregnancy. Therefore, this baby was divine. In fact, the angel said that that person in the womb of Mary is, is holy, revealing the divinity, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the God-man. Well, why is this important? Perfect justice. Because Jesus could have said to the Father, there's no need for me to go down and humble myself and take on human flesh to be with them and uh, uh, to bear their sin. There's no need. Just, Father, let us just forgive them. Let us just ignore them this wrong and maybe give them a, a bit of a, a wrap over the knuckles and that'll do. And there's no need for me to be whipped and suffer and die for sin. If God agreed, if Jesus agreed, they are not deserving of our following because that would make God totally unjust. Man sinned, man has to pay for that sin. Look at this. Supposing a motorist runs a red light, totally in disregard to the law, runs that red light, blatantly, and in the process, hits someone's house, destroying a good part of it. Before the judge, the judge says, you have done wrong, I'm going to give you the judgment today. Pay $20,000. Uh, the law needs to be upheld. You have made an error, a deep error. The man pleads with the judge, please have mercy. I've got a young family. I've got children. They need milk. They need this and that. And, so, and the judge says, all right, 
but still the law needs to be upheld. But I will extend mercy to you. Justice will be served. Here is $20,000 paid by me on your behalf. You are set free. That's good. That's well and good. Supposing the judge did not do this. Supposing there was another judge. And supposing this next judge does this. This next judge says, you were blatantly unlawful in your use of that vehicle. You're fined $20,000. The man pleads with the judge. I've got a young family. I've got kids. I've got, you know. The judge says, all right, what will I do? All right, I know what I'll, I'll do. I'll welcome mercy, but I'll drive out justice from the room. You may go free. You may go free. No, nope, that's nothing you need to do with that $20,000. A judge like this brings horror to the world because life would be unmanageable. There will be no order. There will be chaos. We cannot live in a world like this. And God is not like this. God is a perfectly just God. His perfect justice is displayed for all to see through the sufferings of Jesus. That's why salvation is for His sake, for Him to display that justice, that grace, that wonderful, wonderful, perfect righteousness. Here's a second one. We have perfect justice. Here's the a, here's a next one. Perfect fidelity and dependability. Perfect. There's no one as dependable and as, as, as they'll keep their promise like God. Dozens of prophecies were fulfilled just for the three-day period between his, him being seized and him being resurrected. Over that three-day period, dozens, literally dozens, Go back, read Psalm 22, read, read Isaiah 53, and compare with the New Testament, okay? Dozens of prophecies. This morning, I just want to bring a couple out, okay? Look at this. John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Pilate didn't realize, the soldiers didn't realize they were fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. You know, God can use anyone, even disobedient, um, ungodly people. This was predicted 700 years earlier by Isaiah. If you read Isaiah 50, verse 6, this is what Isaiah the prophet said. I gave my back to those who strike. That's whipping. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Completely fulfilled. I hid not my face from their disgrace and spitting. Fulfilled to the exact detail. Who says God is not trustworthy? Who says God is not dependable? Absolutely dependable. Here's another one. John 19, verse 33. 
they had crucified the three of them, Jesus in the middle and two thieves, and, and to just hasten the, the dying process, they now come to break the legs of those uh, on the cross. And they came to Jesus and they found he was already dead. Jesus was already dead. And so they did not break his legs. For hundreds of years, at the first Passover, God instructed Moses to instruct the nation of Israel. At midnight, the Passover will happen. Go prepare a meal. Take a one-year-old lamb. Don't break its bones. Do not break its bones. Cook that and eat it with bitter herbs. And so for hundreds of years, the Jews have been commemorating, commemorating the first Passover in that fashion without breaking the bones of the lamb. And so many of them were wondering, why did Moses command us, such, command us to do this? Such a, a quaint instruction. Don't break its bones. Well, 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified, David wrote this psalm, and he didn't realize he was making a prophecy. And this is what he said in Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all my bones, all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Not a single bone is broken, fulfilled right to the letter. Not one, not one single bone. So the reason why the Jews were, were told not to break the bones was to to ensure that they could identify who the Savior is when He came. And that's the reason why. God is absolutely pure like no one else. There is no one like Him in terms of, of, of faithfulness and, and trustworthiness and dependability. Absolutely. What He said, He'll deliver. Exactly exact to the detail. Can you trust God like that? Sure we can. Why? Why did Jesus suffer? So that we can see how, how good He is in keeping promises and all for His sake, for His glory. Here's another one. Number three, perfect sympathy for our fallen condition. Perfect sympathy. There is no one like Him. Here's, in fact, here's another prophecy that was fulfilled. John 19, verse, verses 23 and 24. Latter part of John 19, 23. But the tunic, the inner coat, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, the soldiers, let's not tear this apart. You can't tear a seamless garment anyway. Let us not tear this apart and, and share it. Let us gamble for it and see who'll get it. Well, again, a thousand years beforehand, in Psalm 22, this was predicted, this was prophesied by David. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, the outer garments, but for my inner garment, the tunic, they cast lots. Exact fulfillment. But today, at this point, 
it's not about fulfillment of prophecy. It's about how Jesus is perfectly sympathetic. Which class of people wear a tunic? Which group of people, they, they wear tunics? Well, priests. The priests in the Old Testament wear, well, they wear tunics that are woven in one piece from top to bottom with no stitching nor seams on the sides. There's only one class of people, the priests. The high priest can never enter the Holy of Holies without wearing this seamless, in one piece, woven top to bottom piece of tunic. He cannot. John is the only, uh, John is the only one to mention this detail. And I think he's trying to tell us Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. Jesus, to the praise of his glory, for his sake, he can be displayed and then praised as being sympathetic. Hebrews 4, 15 tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Indeed, we have one who, has, who understands our weaknesses, who, who's been tempted just like us, but without sin. He's gone through all the pain that we've been through. Remember his back whipped and flogged? Remember his head punctured with, with, with deep puncture wounds and yet without sin? Farmer put up a for sale sign and it was for sale puppies. And so one little lad saw the sign and went up to the farmer and said, how much? I, I want to buy a puppy. The farmer says, it's going to be pricey because these, are, these puppies come from a good family, good breed, okay? And cost you quite a lot. The little boy says, let me have a look. So the farmer whistles and mummy and four little puppies come running out, wagging their tails. And, and then the little boy notices there was one last puppy lagging behind but coming out with a limp, a severe limp following. And the little boy says, I want that one, that, that limping little puppy. And the farmer was surprised. Why would you want that? That dog, that little puppy was born without a, a socket in his hip. Why would you want it? He can't play, he can't run, he can't jump. You'll not enjoy him. How much? And then the little boy goes near to the farmer, lifts up one pant leg, revealing heavy metal braces on one leg. And the little boy says, I don't walk good as well. I limp. I understand that puppy. That puppy would need a lot of love and tender care. I know it. Jesus, I know all illustrations have their limits, all right? But Jesus is a sympathetic high priest because he has been through all the pain that you and I could, could go through. And yet, without sin, he understands us. Here's another one. <clears throat> one other divine quality <clears throat> which 
Sally talked about this morning. And number four, perfect love. Perfect love. Just two days before Jesus was whipped and crowned with that sham crown and led to the Golgotha to be crucified, that was the last Thursday evening he would spend on earth. He had the last supper with his disciples. John writes this down. John writes in John 13, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Well, this to the end doesn't only mean time, the end of time, because Jesus is timeless. It means to the fullest extent. He loved them and he would love you and me to the fullest extent possible. When he was scourged, when he was arrested that evening in the Garden of Gethsemane, soldiers were holding on to him and uh, his thoughts were on his disciples. He said to the captors, let these men go. He was under duress, and yet he said, calmly, I am he, and immediately they fell backwards. You know, I am, that's the name of God, I am he. The soldiers were shocked, awed by his majesty. That's why he is the God-man, he is divine, he's not just a man, he is both. Man and God fused together, there's only one God-man, no other God-man, only him. He's divine. Pilate said twice, I find no fault in him. Divinity. That's why he's divine. So, I am he. Let them go. His heart was on his disciples. On the cross, on the cross, he looked at his mother and he said, Mommy, <clears throat> Mom, from now on, John will take care of you. His thoughts were on his mother. He loved them to the end. He looks at John. John, from now on, my mother will be your mother. Always thinking selflessly about his disciples, the ones he loved. And then on the cross, the thief, to the thief, he says, in agonizing pain, it's almost like a the venom of a thousand scorpions were, were on his back. And he said, today, you will be with me in paradise. Such selfless love. He suffered for his glory. You see the glory of his love? You see the extent that he would love his people? And that's why when we are in pain, it, it, it pays for us to be less me-centric and more him-centric. Think about him. So, last question. So what? So what? What do we do? Well, I want to suggest to us, pursue a God-centered life. 
we started by saying Jesus died not just for our sake, but also, and in fact, another, other passages say, more so for his sake, more so for his glory. If we know this, what effect should this have on our lives? Well, we need to see things from a divine perspective, from a God perspective. We must live a God-centered life. How do we begin? Well, follow him. John is the only writer to, to include this. At the end, when he had suffered and paid a debt and been raised from the dead and about to, be, to, to ascend back to heaven, he, he makes a charcoal fire on the beach and he, he, he barbecues some fish and he confronts Peter and do you love me more than this he says to Peter three times and Peter he said you know master you know I love you then and Jesus says this when you were young Peter you decided where you wanted to go you want to go here and there you decided you, you made that decision on your own. But when I tell you, when you get older, someone else will take you and will stretch out your arms to take you where you do not want to go. He was actually, Jesus was actually saying to Peter, and Peter knows this, you'll be crucified. Just like I was crucified, you will be crucified. Follow me. He told him the price, and then he says, follow me. Peter followed. Twice, twice, John records Jesus telling Peter, follow me. Follow me into God-centeredness. From now on, it's no longer you who live, but you live for me. Everyone has either one of two destinies, a destiny with God in heaven, and a destiny without God in hell. I know, for modern sensibilities, that word hell is not a good word to use. But it's in the Bible, so we should use it. And we must use it. For those outside of Christ, without His salvation, without His pardon, without accepting His, his payment for our sin, we will be day people like that will be swept off into judgment to face the wrath of God. You know, the Bible gives us a few descriptions concerning the wrath of God, and the words used are extremely sobering. For example, the words used or the phrases used, outer darkness, gnashing of teeth, wailing, agony, anguish, Torment. It's, it's horrible. It's terrible. Yet, that was exactly what Jesus experienced when he, when he bared his back to the, to the whip, when, when his head was crowned with thorns. That was the beginning of the judgment and the wrath of God meant for us but now directed toward Jesus so that he bore the payment. He bore the pain. And now he could, he could transfer his righteousness unmerited towards us, towards every one of us. So that's the, that's the glory of that gospel. But regardless of these 
horrific terms that are used, outer darkness, agony, torment, and so on, there, there are two other phrases that are, that are really, really horrible. It is forsaken by God, abandoned by God. That's what Jesus experienced. He said on the cross, my father, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? You know, abandonment by God meaning abandoned from all that is good. Joy, peace, loveliness. Abandoned from. To be abandoned to all the vices, all the, all the degradation, all the lying and murdering, murderous thoughts and all of those things. That is torment in hell. There is one phrase that describes each of these two places. Let me give you a phrase for hell to describe the torment in hell. It is self-centered godlessness. That's hell. Self-centered godlessness. Now, there is another phrase to describe those who have been redeemed and saved in heaven. And this is the phrase to describe people there. Selfless God-centeredness. God-centeredness versus Godlessness. Well, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays a prayer for the Ephesians. And he says this at the end. He says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul likes to pile superlatives upon superlative upon superlative when he describes great things. He says, that you may be filled, filled means to the brim, with all, wow, there's more, all, the fullness of God. Fullness of God is fullness, but all. So, what does that mean? God-centeredness. That you may have God-centeredness. In heaven, there will be no sun. There will be no street lamps. There will be no electricity. Because you know why? The Bible tells us God himself will be their light. God-centeredness. God-centeredness. So this morning, I just want to recap what we've covered. Jesus died, yes. He suffered, yes. For our sake, yes, yes, yes. But in addition, he bore his, he bared his back and he suffered for his sake, for his glory. There are four things that we should pay heed to, the four qualities today, and perfect justice, perfect fidelity, dependability, trustworthiness, then perfect sympathy for us, perfect love. So what? So what? Well, the so what is this. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me into God-centeredness. Well, our time is up. Can I pray for us? Can I ask us to stand up? Thank you. I'd like you to put your hand to your heart as I pray. Yes. Thank you, Lord. You're a, you're a good God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You suffered, and we see through your suffering, your glory. It's for your glory, 
for your sake, and we thank you. Such a loving Father. What you said, exactly you perform. We thank you, Father. So, Lord, I pray this morning. We are here, your children. I pray you would cause us to all follow you. Come what may. Like Peter, come what may, we will follow you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. I hope you subscribe to the podcast so you can be inspired weekly. God bless and have a great day.